0: This is the Scott Radley Show podcast. I'm Scott Radley, and tonight on the show, we're going to be chatting about one of the oddest discussion points we've had in a long while. How does an atheist keep her job as minister of a united church? That's a story out of Toronto. It's a weird one. We'll be talking about that. Also, Stan Lee, the leading cartoon comic book figure of all time, passed away today. We'll be chatting about his legacy. And then later on, Don Robertson of the Dundas, we'll be talking about sports, specifically about Gary Bettman. Is he a Hall of Famer? He's going in tonight. Is he worthy of it? Stick around. All that's coming up on the podcast.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: Last Friday on the show, we chatted briefly about a story that came out last week of a United Church minister Who was going to have a hearing, but they decided to cancel that hearing and the United Church just said, no, you get to keep your job. You can remain as a minister in the United Church. And this would normally mean very little to a lot of people unless you're in the United Church, except for one very unique, very odd thing. That is, this woman is a self-proclaimed atheist. She does not believe in God, yet she is remaining as a minister in the United Church As I say, we talked about it briefly on the show. I got so much feedback from this particular topic on the weekend. This is the one that people are seeming to having a hard time wrapping their heads around, so we thought we'd go back to it today. Even the Toronto Star today, Rosie DiMano, the Star, not a publication that is normally heavy on traditional religion, wrote about how odd this was that a church could have an atheist as a minister. It seems to be completely out of sync. Especially a church, and I looked it up today. Here is what their statement of faith says. This is what, if you are a member of the United Church, it says We believe in God, the eternal personal spirit, creator, and upholder of all things. We believe that God, as sovereign Lord exalted above the world, orders and overrules all things. In it to the accomplishment of his holy wise and good purposes we believe that God made man to love and serve him that he cares for him as a righteous and compassionate father and that nothing can either quench his love or finally defeat his gracious purpose for man so we acknowledge God as creator upholder and sovereign Lord of all things and the righteous and loving father of men it goes on from there I'm not sure I understand how this all fits together David Haskell is is an associate professor of digital media and journalism. He's also a professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins us now. David, thanks for doing this today.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure, Scott. This is a topic I really like to discuss.
0: Well, I'm really trying hard to wrap my head around how these two pieces fit together.
2: Yeah, well, the thing that is interesting to me is just the effect that this kind of decision will have on an already declining denomination. So, as your listeners may know, the United Church <clears throat> has been hemorrhaging members, well, since the 1960s, actually. The 1960s was its high-water mark, and uh, now it has lost, well, it's, it, where are we at now with it? 300,000, 200,000 from its high-water mark in the 1960s. It uh, It's projected to close the majority of the doors of its churches by the 2020s. And a lot of that, according to some of my own research and the research of others, is directly related to its theology. Because what, what we've seen in the social sciences is that liberal churches, and the more liberal you are, uh, the more likely you are to decline. So I, I think that there's some serious ramifications that are going to come with this decision, because it, it now vindicates the idea that you really don't have to hold any belief at all to be a United Church minister, and it was all they were already in decline. I think that this might speed the decline.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you're referring, uh, with what you're talking about, I believe about two years ago, we've had you on a number of times, but about two years ago we had you on to talk about this study that talks about what you, you're saying, and that was that the churches that were taking a tra- more traditional, more theological stance were growing or holding their own, while the ones that were doing what you're describing were struggling and we're falling and we're losing adherence and people listening to this can say i believe or i don't believe that's entirely their choice but those were were where the numbers were going this as you say doesn't seem like while it may be a a flexible way to say look you're welcome anybody's welcome this doesn't seem like a way based on that study to keep anybody
2: no no it's not and just to be clear i don't give a whit what people want to believe You, you are i'm happy for people to believe what they want but I just like to look at the numbers. Like, that's what I do as a sociologist of religion. So I, can, I like to be able to predict things from large number sets. <clears throat> and we can predict what's going to happen here. Uh, when, when a group of people are spiritual seekers and they're seeking out a church, they're trying to find one that actually gives them purpose and gives them direction. Think of it like this way. If you wanted to get somewhere the best place to the, or the the easiest way to do it is to have a map liberal theologically or theologically liberal churches they kind of throw away the map and they say well you can you can have any route you want well that makes it very difficult for someone who's a, a religious seeker so that's one reason why they decline uh, another reason is typically what you see is people who have a close relationship with god when we ask survey data surveys about this, we see that people who have a close relationship with God say that they are happy. In fact, as a variable, close relationship with God is the strongest variable for happiness in the West. So if you've got a, a pastor like Greta Vosper, who doesn't even believe in God, and, and perhaps she's also promoting that belief among her congregants, they're again at a disadvantage. They're probably going to be some people who aren't as religiously or spiritually satisfied either. So there are a lot of a lot of variables here that are counting against uh, this church even surviving. Not just Greta's church, but uh, the United Church in general, if they're willing to
1: put forward these kind of ideas as legitimate. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We do have, when you read what the church's statement of faith is, I suppose there are some churches out there that are so wishy-washy or so, I'm talking about theologically, that as you described, almost anything goes. The United Church has a very strong statement of faith, whether they follow it or not is something else. I'm trying to figure out how you can squeeze, though, someone who really doesn't believe any of that into a job there. To me, it sounds, I was trying to think of an example, and it's like Steve Jobs saying, I'm going to be the head of Apple, but I absolutely reject all technology.
2: Yeah, that's right. Or, or you're a French teacher, but you're really against speaking French. It's, uh, it is it is a bit baffling. And I was looking at the response that uh, Richard bought. He's the moderator for the United Church right now. And uh, he seemed to be indicating that the Church still does stand for what we call basic biblical truths, that there is a God and that Jesus was his son. So there is a disconnect as to how they... Uh, came came to the decision that Greta Vosper was still in alignment with them, uh, it looks like they're just trying to avoid a public confrontation, or maybe even what might be a costly lawsuit. So it, they certainly...
0: But, it, but if you're a church, are you not more afraid of not standing for anything and being seen as not being willing to be anything other than the lawsuit. Take the lawsuit and, and live with that and say, but at least we stand for something.
2: Well, you've got to look at the history of the United Church, though, uh, and I'd, some of your listeners may remember the uh, a past moderator. His name was Bill Phipps, and uh, he was 1997 to about 2000. Well, one of the first things he said when he became moderator, which is the, the uh, ostensibly the head of the United Church, he said that Jesus was not God, and in point of scientific fact, he didn't raise from the dead. Well, even at that point, that raised a few eyebrows, but he still got to stay moderator. So there's always been this idea within the United Church that uh, they, they want to include everybody right? Even those people who are on the spiritual fringes in terms of what we call traditional Christianity. But there's an irony there. Uh, Is there nothing that could be so outlandish or so far from whatever your creeds are that that wouldn't be excluded? Are you so dedicated to inclusion that there's absolutely nothing that anyone can do?
0: And look, as I say, if you want to have, if someone wants to have a church or a community organization or whatever else, that does that that's, that, that's totally fine. I just don't understand then why you would have this statement of faith that is posted on your website that says this is what we stand for if clearly that's not what you stand for. Go ahead and do it. If you, if you want to have a community organization, there are lots of fantastic humanist community organizations that do great work and that we can applaud in all kinds of ways. It just seems like this is not it.
2: No, and, and I mean, we do have the Unitarian Church, And the Unitarian Church says in its doctrines that if you want to believe in God, you can, and if you don't want to believe in God, that's okay. That seems to be a closer fit for Greta Vosper, and I don't know why she wouldn't have, rather than try and shoehorn herself in um, and maybe abuse the sensibilities of other people in her denomination, why she wouldn't have moved. There's lots of movement between pastors pastors, from one denomination to another, that would have been something that would have solved the problem completely. But, but, but with the Unitarian Church, again, going back to this idea of decline, uh, they declined by about 1% per year in the United States, while the population itself grows by about 1.5%. So, so churches le- like that, the Unitarian Church or the church that Greta Vosper is going to be in charge of or is in charge of, It it has a problem, and the problem is it cannot make its own members. If you look at the Unitarian Church, it depends on other churches to convert people or bring people in. They become disaffected, and then they'll gradually percolate down, a few of them, to the Unitarian Church. But they, they actually can't make their own members because part of their ethos or character is that they don't like to force religion on people. There's a real irony there.
0: Can you think of another example of any other line of work? And we both touched on an example here, but where rejecting the core foundation of what that business is for, and we're going to call it a business for the sake of this discussion, um, would be accepted, where where you could say, "I absolutely reject what you believe in, but I expect to still remain employed." And I, and not only do I reject what you believe in, I won't do the job. That I'm supposed that fits in with what we're doing here, but I expect to remain employed i i can't find I can't think of another example
2: well I think we're seeing something pretty close in the university these days uh We actually have some very ideological professors who deny some basic science uh, especially related to uh different sexual or biological issues and um and in, those, and in that regard, I think that you know, they're, they're employed, but uh, when the empirical evidence goes against their particular sensibilities, they actually ask for that empirical evidence to be silenced. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not a 100% match, but you, you see that it's sort of this larger idea. Uh, it's the logical extension of cultural relativism where you don't stand for anything or, or you're going to put forward this idea that it goes against the foundations of whatever your particular uh, discipline is, or in this case, whatever your theology of a particular denomination is, but they'll still accept it. It's, it's a weird time we're in.
0: That is a great way to wrap it up, because it absolutely is. David Haskell, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Journalism, Religion and Culture at Wilford Laurier University. Always appreciate having you on, David. Thanks for doing this today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
2: The biggest
0: powerhouse, biggest icon, biggest moneymaker in Hollywood died today. Stan Lee was his name. You've probably heard about him. You don't necessarily think of him as the Hollywood icon. You think of him as a comic book legend. He was 95 years old, by the way. Uh, He is the comic book illustrator whose characters have been the backbone, really, of many... Maybe not most, but many of the modern action movie genre. Spider-Man, as you just heard there, the Hulk, X-Men, Black Panther, The Thing, Ant-Man, Fantastic Four, Human Torch, Captain Marvel, Silver Surfer. goes on and on and on and on. Here's what you probably don't know about him, though. You might, but you may not know this. Combined, beyond the comic book world, in Hollywood combined... His characters and the movies that they've been a part of have racked up over $26 billion in box office receipts, which makes him the number one, Stan Lee, the number one money maker in Hollywood all time. And in a weird little thing, because he's had cameo appearances in many of those films, he's actually listed as the number one money making actor in Hollywood. That's a little tweaking of the rules, I suppose, but nonetheless. Uh, You may be a fan, you may not be a fan, but his impact is impossible to ignore. Michael Walsh is a Hamilton-based comic book creator. He has worked with a number of major companies, including Marvel. Uh, He joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today.
3: Hey, no problem. Thanks
0: for having me. This is this is your world. This is what you do for a living. You are a guy whose work people who are comic book fans have read and seen. Uh, you know this better than anybody. Where, for someone like you, for an illustrator, for someone working in this line of work, where does Stan Lee rank?
3: Oh, geez. I mean, in terms of his uh, effect on the entire comic books industry and the way that he shaped and molded Marvel itself, he's probably number one in... Um, right up there with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, two of his co-creators on many of the properties that you have mentioned earlier.
0: You've worked to make characters come to life. That That's one of the things that really stands out about Stan Lee is the, um, I don't know if humanity of his characters, but maybe that's the right word for it. How hard is that to do?
3: Um, it's very difficult. And I think that is kind of a perfect word for it. Um, I think that that was the thing that made Stan different from a lot of creators at the time is that his characters had uh, they were flawed but moral characters in in very complex worlds that he was building with his creators and uh, and they were very human very relatable readers were uh, intensely invested in their lives especially characters like Spider-Man where you didn't really have characters like that at the time. Everyone was this kind of perfect superhero. And he brought this um, nerdy kid who had a lot of flaws but was extremely lovable into an industry that didn't really have that character at the time. And people were instantly enamored with that.
0: Do you get the sense that that just came very naturally because most of his characters seemed to have that? Or do you believe deep down that he really had to work at that? Because I look at it and I go, if all your characters seem to have that, it must have come naturally.
3: Um, I think he was, yeah, I think it was natural. I think he was just an idea man who would, you know, go back and forth with his collaborators or say, this is what we could do. And he had these big, huge ideas. And then, you know, someone like Jack Kirby would put that all on the page. And then Stan would come back and put this really uh, human dialogue and this natural dialogue into it and flesh out the characters in a way that not a lot of people can do.
0: Is that all about the execution then, or is it simply the idea? Is it, like, can you it's just come- both, I think.
3: But I think that, you know, the ideas are a dime a dozen. Any, any single person on the street can just say, ah, I have this great idea, but if you don't execute it well, the idea doesn't even matter at the end of the day.
0: So coming up with, let's use, a, it, fair to say Spider-Man would be his probably most famous character?
3: Um, I would say, yeah, it's probably a toss-up between like Spider-Man and the X-Men. Okay. I would think are the two most well-known of his creations.
0: So let's take Spider-Man just as the example because it's up there. So if you have a terrific idea of this, this person who's been bitten by a radioactive spider and now has these superpowers, by itself, that's not enough to make the comic book or that character take off? There actually has to be an execution of how you draw or write for that person?
3: Yeah, well definitely. It's all about the execution after that point because I mean, you could say, "Oh, there's a teenage kid who got bitten by an alligator and then he turned into alligator man." But that wouldn't really <laughs> matter if it wasn't done well, right?
0: Is there are there any examples cuz I'm trying to think of like Superman, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too simplistic. Superman seems kind of like it almost writes itself. Like you've got this character that just can almost do anything. Uh, I know that's probably not fair to the people who have drawn Superman over the years, but <laughs> right. um, but but it seems like there's one or two that that almost you don't even have to do much with. They just are, as soon as you have the idea, they're good to go. But his work that way, I don't think.
3: Well, I think I also have a bit of a biased perspective because I'm a creator. So I have to believe that <laughs> the people that follow my work or that are fans of mine are doing that because of the validity of my uh, art, and not because I'm working on specific characters, right?
0: You mentioned so, a couple. So I'm biased. <laughs> you mentioned a couple. Well, it's, and you know what? Your and your work is great, by the way. Um, Thank you. Uh, you mentioned a couple other names right off the top when we started this. Stan Lee is the name that most non-comic book diehards know. Again, because he's had cameos in the movies, and because we've seen him and know that name. But he did work with other people. He wasn't building these characters by himself.
3: That is very true. I think um, probably the the biggest person that he worked with in terms of influence would probably be Jack Kirby, who he created a a good majority of his characters with. Uh, Spider-Man he created with Steve Ditko, who's also great. But um, if you look at the the breadth of characters that Jack Kirby had an influence in in creating, um, you just look him up on Wikipedia, and, and his list is just as long as Stan Lee's, but he was primarily an artist. Um, early in his career, so I don't think he gets the the kind of accreditation that Stan Lee does. But also I think that Stan Lee is probably one of the best hype men in in comics and hype, film. Hype men. Hype, hype men. Okay, yeah. Like he's great at at presenting himself as an influential creator and getting himself in the spotlight and making himself into a character just as much as the characters that he created. Um, At the time, you know, when you thought of Marvel, you thought of Stan Lee. And that was not just because of the characters, but because he put himself out there in in magazines and interviews and stuff like that in a way that other creators weren't at the time. He was a superstar when that didn't really exist in comics.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Talking about Stan Lee, who died today, you probably know the name Stan Lee, not only one of the great cartoon cartoon comic book people one of the drivers of the comic book industry superheroes marvel comics all the rest Uh, by the way if you're wondering if stan lee because it sounds like stan lee and a lot of people thought that was a made-up name his actual name is was stanley martin lieber so stan lee was legit he shortened the last name but that was his name he didn't just make that all up uh but again even if you're not a comic book fan he is the number one driver of Hollywood. His ca- his characters have brought in, in the movies, $26 billion. That is number one all time. So even if you don't like those movies, the movies you do like, the entertainment you do like, well, they help to fund some of those movies you do like. So he kind of crosses into every little bit of Hollywood right now. Uh, we're talking with Michael Walsh, who is a Hamilton-based comic book artist and illustrator uh, who has worked for Marvel, among others. And Michael, just before the break, we were talking. you were talking about how he has become kind of famous. He did become the face of comic book illustrators, though, somehow. I don't know how he did it. You say he was a hype man. But whatever it was, he found himself as the face of the comic industry.
3: Yeah, he definitely did. I think he's the kind of creator that uh, really thrives in the spotlight. And he has such a, a warm and infectious personality and so much charisma that people just instantly got behind him as a person
0: best you know and i don't know how much you studied his background was he always like that was he always that warm guy because a lot of people when they were back in the peak of their careers when they were a little more cutthroat they became beloved in their later years but weren't so warm and fuzzy and cuddly when they were younger do you know much about his background that way
3: well, I know he had been doing comics since I believe the forties and fifties, and then in the sixties and seventies is really when he started blowing up as the man behind marvel um, but i if you are interested in the the real life story of Stanley and really any of the early Marvel's work, there's a fantastic um nonfiction book called Marvel Comics: The Untold Story by Sean Howe that I'd recommend any any fan of comics or just these characters, Spider-Man, you know, Thor, Ant-Man, X-Men to pick up because it's just a fantastic read. And it will give you a lot of insight into the way that Marvel was formed and, you know, how all these characters came about.
0: Would it be a fair description of him to say he is the grittier Walt Disney?
3: (laughs) The grittier? Well, he himself wasn't too gritty. His, his comics were pretty light, but still, like I was saying before, very human and very heartfelt at the time. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily say gritty, but maybe a more complex Walt Disney.
0: Well, one of the things he did, and I was reading this today, and it had never really dawned on me of one of the things that was a breakthrough, but uh, apparently one of the things that was really unusual when he started doing this was that he would cross over his characters that had lived in their own little worlds would intersect, and suddenly you'd have comics that had characters that had never actually been uh, involved together now intersecting in a story, which really it sounds like that opened the door for not only for a lot of these movies that we're seeing now, but for a lot of the way comics are done now that you don't have to have parallel lines. They can be intersecting lines, all these characters.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think because he had created so many of the characters in the Marvel roster, roster, especially at the time, he wanted to have these characters interacting in a way that was non-existent before then. So when X the X Men met Spider Man, that was this big, huge moment that was something that hadn't been seen before. Right,
0: because Batman and Superman, until at, way after this, had never been in the same story. Right.
3: That is correct. I don't, I, and then I think that also stems from there's just two uh, different creators between those two characters. So, but you as know, an example, like yeah, Stan, Stanley wanted all of his children to meet on the page. You know,
0: <laughs> was he a great illustrator?
3: Uh, I haven't actually i don't know if he's done much drawing actually I, he was more of a writer and an idea guy
0: all right all right'cause and and but even then to get the number to get the amount that he produced the amount of comic books and everything else you he had to find people it wasn't just the partners that he was with you have to find people and this is kind of where you come in as well how do you how do you find if you're running one of these companies the people who can all I don't want to say what you're doing is mimicking other artists. because I don't think that's what you're doing, but you also have to be able to fall in to draw the character in a recognizable way. How do you do that? How do you find the people to do this work?
3: Well, I mean, Marvel finds most people now, I would say, on the internet because the internet is so vast and there's so many artists and there's so many platforms to uh, put your work out there in, in the social media realm like Instagram and Tumblr and Twitter. So it's pretty easy to find artists. But uh, speaking of... Trying not to mimic you know uh, the house styles and the stuff that's come before that's a real balancing act as an artist because you want the characters to be instantly recognizable and you want um, to do something that's kind of familiar to readers, but at the same time you want to have a unique voice as a creator so that when someone looks at the art they can instantly tell that you did it as the creator of that art so it's kind of an endless balancing act that um, I personally am constantly thinking about and trying to factor into the way that I draw and create comic books.
0: We only have a few seconds left, so we'll have to do this quickly, but uh, where would this industry be? Not just the movie superhero industry, but the comic book industry. Where would it be without Stan Lee right now?
3: I honestly have no idea. I don't even know if if Marvel would even exist as we know it um, without Stan Lee, because every single big character that they have, or 90% of them, was co-created by him. So, you know, maybe DC's characters would have boomed in a way that Marvels didn't and they would have been absorbed by DC, but it's impossible to to speculate what, what the uh, the world would have been like without without the man and what, what the film industry even would have looked like without the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: His name is Michael Walsh. He is a comic book illustrator and artist and drawer and creator who comes from Hamilton. He lives right here in town. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let me bring in Don Robertson from the Dundas Real McCoys and Com Choice Realty and a variety of other endeavors around the city of Dundas, the great city, the metropolis of Dundas, Ontario. He's here every Monday night. Tonight being no different. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. Help me out with this, Don. Tonight is... Uh, Hall of Fame night for the Hockey Hall of Fame. They're going to induct their new class into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Why are there four games going on tonight? Why Why would the NHL not shut everything down on Hall of Fame night so that the attention is on to the Hall of Fame as opposed to other things? It's not like there's no other nights to put games.
4: Makes no sense. I, You would think that they could have worked something out with the scheduler to uh, not have to play on a Monday. It's not like it's a Friday or Saturday night where, you know, in, in, in Canada, you c- the NHL teams can play any night and do well. Sometimes in the States they need to, uh, you know, be weekends. Yeah, but I can't
0: imagine Monday for an American team but, is a great night. Yeah, but Monday
4: is, uh, uh, it makes no sense. I, you know, I mean, I've got other adjectives, but. It, it just it Might almost be my last show.
0: No, but there are people. There is one person in particular who you would who's going into this Hall of Fame class, Gary Bettman, who you would think has some sway in this. Now he's probably not going to right. try and pull this this year because then it would look like he's just trying to draw more attention to himself. But it just it almost seems disrespectful, and it has for years to the people going in to say, "Yeah, you're going to go in, but." We'll still run the regular game, so people will pay attention to that instead of to you. It, it this one is it is such a no brainer that it just it boggles me that, and it's not Don, It's not a, this is not the first year that this has been an oops. This has happened for years now.
4: No, oh, I know, <clears throat> especially when the league have their Hall of Fame game on a Friday in Toronto. So it's a weekend of festivities, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody was at the uh, in Toronto for the Friday night game and. It's pretty easy. So if you're if you're smart enough to be able to schedule your Hall of Fame game on Friday, you would think taking the Monday off would be kind of grade two stuff to yeah. figure out. Because
0: the other thing is every well, I don't know, not every Hall of Famer. Certainly some have passed away, some are not well, but there's a there's enough Hall of Famers who are there that show up for this. Th- that if you want to put together coverage or, or material for your network, you can get lots and lots of stuff that you would want that to be the story that's on ESPN or on NBC Sports or on Fox Sports or whatever else down in the States. There's lots of stuff for you to get. It's not like it's going to be hard to get some interviews or or run some Documentary, whatever it is, something to do with the guys who are, or and women. Now that Jenna uh, Hayford is going, Jenna Hefford is going in. It, it, it's not difficult to do this right. I, I, I don't understand it at all. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's silly. While on the topic of the Hockey Hall of Fame, Gary Bettman, as I said, is going in as commissioner of the league into the
4: builders category. Is Gary Bettman a Hall of Famer? Absolutely. Greatest commissioner or president the league's ever had. Keep going. Built the business. Has 32 teams. Um, we all know the NHL's a business, and he runs it like a business. Clarence Campbell, for those old enough to remember, really was the caretaker of the six-team league, and uh, there wasn't there was no marketing. There was no rink boards. There were... It was Hockey Night in Canada on CBC, likely because they were the only ones interested in carrying it. Um, Bettman's done a colossal or a tremendous job uh, of building the brand of the National Hockey League. I think it's legitimately now one of the four four major sports. Uh, I think Canadians always thought it was, but I think in the U.S. now it is. I think you're going to see a new... Um, television deal in the States because of the popularity. Is that the one
0: thing that is missing from his resume right now? Cause he's put teams in some of the places that you didn't think hockey could be. Yes. And he's, I think I heard today that the revenues when he took over were 400 million roughly a year. And now they're 4.5 billion a year. So you can't argue with that. The fact that he's bringing more money in.
4: Although inflation, everything else, like everything has gone up, but clearly he. I don't think it's turned 400 million into 4 billion. I think he's been very creative. I don't think inflation over the 25 years. No, no, I'm saying it would have gone up. It
0: would have gone up somewhat regardless Mm -hmm. of who was there. I don't think it will have gone up that much unless you've done some things. I'm I'm giving him credit in that case. I think that the. But I, I look at it and I think that that TV deal, that American, that big, proper. Lucrative
4: American TV deal is the thing that's missing on his resume right now. Yeah, he was on ESPN, and then they found some obscure network no one had ever heard of to put the games on. But they're on NBC now, and they're on during the week. Yeah, they're just not paid much for it. There is exposure, but not much money. Well, but it's a revenue-sharing thing, and the NHL had to take the risk. But my understanding is now that they're probably going to re-up, probably with NBC, and probably get paid. And They won't get paid NBA money or NFL money or they won't even get paid Sportsnet money for the U.S., but, they're, but he's done it and he's made some mistakes. I mean, uh, you know, you can chastise him for putting a team in Phoenix and, and staying there, but he somehow seems to have the ability to, to uh, run through a bunch of rich guys that want to own, own sports teams and have them own the Phoenix Coyotes and the Arizona Coyotes. And, you know, he said, you know, look at the blunders he's had. But Carolina's won a Stanley Cup, and if they win, they draw well. Nashville, I I think a lot of people would have been skeptical if there was anything in Nashville that could relate to hockey, and yet they draw well. They're, you know, the on-ice product matters. But I think you can call Nashville a legitimate NHL team. You can always point to Florida, Florida the Panthers, who can't seemingly draw enough people to have a game of bridge on a regular basis, but how does that become such a colossal failure and the Tampa Bay Lightning, um, Dave Anderchuk's team, be such a success story? Well,
0: and and to his his credit, there's also... uh, There are players from these places. Austin Matthews is a product of that Southern expansion. If a no NHL team goes to Arizona, Austin Matthews probably doesn't start playing
4: hockey. I I think... um, um, oh, guy escapes me. Who uh, who bought Gretzky off Pocklington? Uh, Bruce McNall, hmm. and I think Wayne Gretzky made hockey popular in California. Not as popular as basketball and baseball, but I think he put um, he put an emphasis on, he put a stamp on it, and now you see players coming to the National Hockey League that are from California. And and 25 years ago, you'd have never saw any of that. And John Ziegler. I mean, you start comparing them to some of the presidents we've had. They're now called commissioners. John Ziegler wasn't leading anybody to the promised land. Again, Clarence Campbell was a, a caretaker of a six-team league that probably you and I could have done the job that Clarence Campbell did, and that's probably not fair to Clarence Campbell. But he, didn't, he wasn't growing the sport the way Gary Bettman's done, and I think he's, again, the best commissioner the NHL's ever had is – Largest, single largest failure in my mind is they don't have a second team in southern Ontario, although there's two teams in Ontario. They don't have a second team in Ontario, and they have three teams in New York, and they have two. I went to, uh, I chartered with the Oilers to L.A. to to watch their last two games a few years ago, you know, and uh, we went to the uh, Staples Center and a 45-minute bus ride to Anaheim, and that's nuts. California have three teams. Yep. Ontario it, have two. Is that's it a fair, crazy.
0: is it a fair knock on Gary Bettman that while he's done what you've said, while he has grown the business, that he has been a guy working for the owners not for the betterment of the players or the game. That he's been about making money and he's been successful at making money and broadening the footprint, but as far as the game itself and the players itself that he has not been that's not been his thing.
4: Well I I, I, I you know you can argue anything. Um I wouldn't disagree um, that you can make that argument. I I wouldn't make it. I think because of uh, the footprint that's been expanded to the United States, you use Austin Matthews as an example. I use California-born players. That doesn't happen without Gary Bettman. So now they're going to have 32 teams. I suggest to you 25 years ago there weren't enough good hockey players to have 32 teams to play at this level. We all, know oh, there's, absolutely. we all know there's enough players, but now not you've good got... good players. There weren't. There weren't. No. There,
0: back I, when there were 16 teams, there was often a knock that there's not enough players for 16 teams. Now
4: you're double that. Now, now you're double that. And the caliber, arguably, has never, ever been better. So um, I think the players benefit. I mean, there's a the salary cap, so there's balance. I mean, you can argue the salary cap's a bad thing. I think uh, the National Hockey League, it fits well for them. Uh, otherwise, the Toronto Maple Leafs could be spending $150 million a year on players. And the Florida Panthers paying $40 million, and that creates an imbalance. Baseball. It, just like baseball. And and there is an imbalance in baseball, right? I mean, every once in a while, uh, somebody's not spending a lot of money squeaks in. Oakland. But not on a regular basis. Boston, New York, Los Angeles. So uh, when you say, to, has it helped the players and it has it helped the um Fans, well, there's, uh, there's millions of more hockey fans in North America now than there was before, part, partly due to Gary Bettman, and hockey players have never made more money. Why do Canadians hate him so badly,
0: or is that a stupid question that is just so obvious? Because every, every, you talk to most Canadian fans, and they think Gary Bettman sucks. They, I mean, they do. They, they, that is the common yep. refrain, that Gary Bettman is the worst thing ever to happen to hockey. Why are
4: Canadians so sour on him? Well, I think you're generally talking about fans that have allegiance to a team and specifically to a team. And it's absurd to blame Gary Bettman for the fact that a Canadian team hasn't won the Stanley Cup since you had hair. Well, since the year he took over. Coincidence? Conspiracy. Coincidence? I think it's not so. I mean, it's it's all based on the operation of the team, and we have what seven teams? Yep. Now, and that's hardly his fault that we can't win a Stanley Cup. I mean, do you blame do you blame him for the Edmonton Oilers having four first round draft picks in six years and not being able to make it? Chicago did it. L.A. did it. People who get high ranking draft picks generally. Find their way to the top. See,
0: the argument against that would be that in in a real business, in a capitalist business world, the companies that make money should be able to spend more. And so there should be something in the salary cap. If you're going to have a salary cap, it should be something closer to the NBA where you can go above the salary cap, but you're going to pay into a fund to help the teams that are suffering a little more. And so you and, and the only way you can do that is with players that you already have to keep the players
4: on your on your roster. But but Gary Bettman did that. I mean he 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 doesn't have a salary cap set up like that. But when the Canadian dollar was at seventy cents, the National Hockey League subsidized all of the Canadian teams whose revenues were not high enough. So the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers and Cal Nichols. Uh, the the fellow that headed, uh, and and an absolute wonderful man, was chairman of the Edmonton Oilers Ownership Group, told me that if it wasn't for Gary Bettman helping them subsidize their payroll and the difference in the dollar, because everybody's paid in U.S. funds, there'd be no Edmonton Oilers. And he thanks Gary Bettman. So, I mean, I I get it from some pretty good sources that, that there's a lot of owners, back to the ownership, that really admire and appreciate everything he's done. What if there is, there's rumors that there's going to be
0: another lockout coming up? Because there's a, um.
4: There's an opening in the
0: collective bargaining agreement that will permit that. For next year or the year after. What if that happens again and you now have Gary Bettman overseeing four lockouts in his time? Does that take any of the shine off of his business acumen? Uh, I
4: think every, every lockout takes a little bit out, but he's got them. I mean, he, he made them sit out a year. I mean, they made a collective decision that, in the best interest of the game from a business standpoint and a balance standpoint and a growth standpoint. We have to take this stand. They lost an entire year. I mean, some players died on that hill. You mm-hmm. know, they never played again in the National Hockey League. Their retirement came a little quicker than they wanted. But Batman's leadership, uh, and he had the support of the owners, thought that was in the best interest of the game. So if you like the balance of the National Hockey League, you have to tip your hat to them. Then there's 32 teams and there's only a couple that are, you know, um, not, not performing well. That's going to be a real interesting one, especially because
0: if you were to lose another chunk of a year or a big chunk of a year, that'll be an interesting one to see how, because that again, that's for the owners. That's for the owners to help the owners' money. And so for fans, and you wonder why the Canadian fans are so so cranky. Here we are. The irony of this is going to be, Don, that we have not had a Canadian team win a Stanley Cup since Gary Bettman took over. And we now have a bunch of Canadian teams that look like they are moving towards getting good enough to actually win a Stanley Cup and we will go into another lockout, which could end up causing a different way the salary cap is done or something, which could make it more difficult again for them. The Gary Bettman, who will never be loved in Canada, will be even less loved in Canada. The owners will love him. I'm not sure the fans, though, will find great joy in his
4: lockout if that's what happens. I don't think I'm smarter than anybody else. That's not true. I do think I'm smarter than a lot of people. But I think that if objective fans look at it like I've looked at it, like I've spelled it out, you have to appreciate the job the guy has done. All I simply said is, I think he's the best commissioner, the greatest commissioner slash president the National Hockey League has ever had, and I can argue that point with a lot of people. And the ones that don't believe me are wrong. I'll say this as we go to the last to this break:
0: I, I don't also think that there are too many people in Hamilton who think too wonderfully of Gary Bettman.
4: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you something: uh, having op, uh, operating a team called the Dundas Real McCoys that don't play in Dundas anymore. But uh, operating a team in Dundas, we are damn proud The Gary Bettman, the last NHL game Barry, Gary Bettman went to in this area was in Dundas. Certainly wasn't in Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I was watching a short, five-minute-long piece online. I have no idea how I got to this. It was one of those... YouTube things where you start watching one thing and then you click on something else and 10 minutes later you're watching a video about something that you had no intention of ever going to, but somehow you're watching it. It was somehow this came right after the Las Vegas real estate video that I watched and then it got to this somehow. Anyway, totally off track. It was a five or six minute report about a... 15-year-old named Blaze Jordan, and they're talking about this kid, Blaze Jordan, being the next Bryce Harper, that this is the next superstar of baseball, this is the kid that is going to take over, be the next generation, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, whatever else, 15 years old. And it got me thinking that I also, last week, by a weird coincidence, ended up seeing a story about a kid named Elijah Fisher who's a Canadian kid from Toronto who is being touted as the first overall NBA draft pick in 2023 he's a middle schooler right now when is it to when is the right age to actually begin talking about kids in any sport as legitimately being the next one? Is is 13 too early? Is 15 too early? When when can you really start talking about these kids and say, yeah, that that's not ridiculous. Gretzky was 10. But you want to know a funny story about Gretzky? T- I used to work with Ted Bear when I worked in Brantford. Great man. Ted Bear was uh, one of the great columnists. He, he should have, could have worked at a much bigger paper in Toronto or wherever else. Was a g- wonderful writer uh, and a great human being. And Ted forever joked about the fact, self-deprecating jokes about the fact that he. everyone kept telling him this Gretzky kid was going to be really good and he kept saying, yeah, but he's 10, he's 11. I know he got 343 goals or whatever it was with the Nadrovsky Steelers, but he's 10 years old. On a weekend. Yeah. I'm not writing about a kid who's 10 who scored because he's four feet tall and he's never going to make... And Ted would always laugh about how he blew it, how he missed that one. But 99 times out of 100... He would have been right. Gretzky was the oddity and Gretzky was the unusual case in that one. 99 times out of 100, if you're writing about a 10-year-old kid who's dominating in some sport, we're never going to hear about that. Remember
4: case. the name of the next uh, the next one out of Brantford that uh, was the sure-fired... Brian Fogarty? Mike Campbell. Mm. Similar scoring stats, dead. Now, uh, that was a bit... He played for us a little bit in Dundas. Uh, when he was done, he played a little bit of pro, but he never obviously turned into Wayne Gretzky. But his dad was had him in a house league in in um, in Hamilton, so he could score 250 goals. You know, it was uh, it wasn't identical, but uh, I think it speaks to your comment that 99 percent of the time it's wrong. So I I don't know. I mean, I use Gretzky because he that's a gimme putt, but. You know, they were talking about LeBron when he was in high school. He never went to college. Got, you know, went from high school basketball to the NBA. And I'm sure down around Cleveland, they were talking about him being the next Michael Jordan, and he was. Now, it, they don't all work out that way, but that's pretty high praise for somebody, and I'm more interested in who's saying it. If it's me saying it, don't put any uh, heed to it. Um,
0: I, I covered the, what, years ago... There was a team, a Hamilton Junior Bulldogs team, Pee Wees, that went to the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament, which is the prestigious 12-year-old hockey tournament. It's, I mean, it really is the top tournament in the world, and the best teams go there. And I went all the way there, took a train to go cover this team that was—this was a great Hamilton Junior Bulldogs team. That There was belief they could win the whole thing, which is why I went, because we don't go every time there's a Hamilton team. And they played a team, the St. Louis Junior Blues. I remember this specifically on the first game. And they outshot St. Louis something like 77-5 to 5 and lost 1-0. <laughs> and the goalie for St. Louis, this kid was unbelievable. You, they were firing shots from everywhere. And this kid was stopping everything. And, he, and I watched this kid and I went, I, made a, I don't know what off the top of my head now. I made a note of this kid's name. I wrote it down. I said, I got to keep up and see whatever happens to this goalie because he's going to go somewhere. And probably two or three years ago, I checked for the last time and he would now be in his mid-twenties. Never played hockey anywhere. Never even played college hockey. And that's always the, 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 the cautionary tale Of these stories, you get a kid who's 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 and does one thing or has one, he's physically dominating or she's physically dominant because of their size at that point when they're so much bigger than everyone else or so much stronger and they look like they're going to be unbelievable and then everyone catches up.
4: I mean, there are absolute superstars at the world junior tournaments and those kids are teenagers playing in the OHL Western League, Canadian Hockey League. They don't pan out, and that's they may it. make it to the NHL, but they don't become stars. Well, they don't. They don't become Gretzky or Lemieux, who no. are Lindros did when he played in uh, Hamilton for Team uh, Team Canada, in the Canada as an eighteen-year-old. But the the difference, I guess, in
0: some of those cases, like I, I don't know, Lindros was so much advanced over everyone else. Well, he was a man when he was. But that's. But see, Eric kid. Lindros to me is the. Perfect example of the cautionary tale that you would that I would look at and I would say, "Huh, I'm not sure." Because when by the time Lindros was 18, he was six four and about 220 pounds. But when Eric Lindros was 12, they were talking about him, but he wasn't six foot four at that point.
4: But, but but he was a great player. He
0: was a great player, and he was bigger than all the other kids. And so the 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 fear is. That, okay, he's a really good player, and at this age, he's bigger than all the other kids, but if he stops growing and they catch
4: up, he just becomes another guy. I'm really going to show my age here. Ernie Godden led the OHL in scoring a couple years in a row. He was a small guy back in the probably late 70s because I tried to get him to play senior for me in Brantford for the Mots after his. but he was an absolute superstar in the OHL. But never, never made it in the NHL. So there, there are guys that peak too early. Jim Ralph's self-deprecating humor, who was an all-star with the Ottawa Sixty-Sevens, used to do a little bit and said, I, "I always struggle with you know being an all-star in the OHL and do you peak too early and and what athletes peak earlier than I do?" And he said, "The only people I can come up with are things I can come up with are horses." Uh, who are generally done when they're four. Yep. Um, so it depends on when you peak and at what level you peak at. But reading, some some guys just don't get any better.
0: Reading about these kids though, and they're both in middle school. Well, one would be in high school. This kid Blaze Jordan would be he'd be fifteen, so he'd be in grade nine or ten maybe. Uh, but this Elijah Fisher, who by all accounts is an unbelievable talent in basketball, he's dunking in grade six and dunking easily in grade six and making it look, you know, and. I don't know. I just I, I, I'm I'm always loath to jump on that bandwagon because more often than not, those kids mm. don't become. I and there are examples. You you've touched on examples of those who buck the trend. I mean, Sidney Crosby was talked about as a superstar and turned out to be every bit that. Um, there are you know Gretzky and. Lindros, as you said, and LeBron. There are examples.
4: I think sometimes the difference is um, like the, the, the kid in Toronto. A lot of his success, well, I mean, we talked a lot about sports psychologists. We talked about um, David Price last week and what gets into his head and what doesn't get into his head. And, and uh, it, it'll be a lot of the parents at that age with that type of hype being able to make sure he go, does his homework and, and just try, you try and have him grow up as a normal life and qu- not read the headlines. So I think a lot of it falls to the parents that have to be able to handle the success. And there'll be some parents that will be gloating about it and talking about shoe deals and blow things out of proportion. Oh, the kid's their retirement and, plan. And the kid goes down the wrong track at a wrong age. You know what I mean. Um, um, Guardforth, uh, who owns Cope Town Woods, was telling me uh, Brooke Henderson played golf at his golf course as a like a 16 year old, or I'm guessing at the age, and his and her sister was there. And when they were done, and the sister was a great golfer too. She went in and had a burger and fries, and Brooke Henderson went to the driving range and, and practiced and came in and had a salad and chicken. And, and Same parents, but just one was really, really driven and said, this is going to be important for me to stay on the right track and everything else, and we know the, the success she's had. And I think that matters. I think how the parents do it and how the kid receives it and knows the work it's going to take to be the absolute very best – and just being a good middle schooler is not likely going to be enough to get to the NBA and make a, a billion dollars. So I, I think a lot of it at that young age is the parents keeping them on the rails and keep them on track. Yeah, I, yeah,
0: I, I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. I just, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm loath to jump on the bandwagon with most of these kids. And if I miss one or if we miss one, I'd rather miss one because everybody wants to be the person who says, ah, I told you when he was 12, I told you that he was going to be a star. No one says, yeah, but I also picked him, 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 her, and her, and they all flamed out and turned out to be nothing like I said. But you, everybody wants to be the genius who finds the
4: person who's going to be the next enormous star. You don't want to have to sit around when you're seven years old and tell the Ted Bear story. That's what you don't want to do.
0: Well, you know, and 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 That's going to happen.
4: He looked at Wayne Gretzky
0: and said, "He is—I mean, no exaggeration—he's four foot something tall. He's a hundred pounds wet. Yeah, he's scoring a ton of goals on these kids, but who's he scoring it on? And—and and as soon as you got someone
4: who is able to hit him, he's done." Well, I—I I was a linesman, Jim Burton refereed uh, from Brantford, and, and Gretzky's uh, was playing for the. Um, the junior B team in in, in um, Toronto, the Toronto Young Nats, and um, they played against uh, Stratford Coltons in the Ontario Finals, and it was the first time I'm going to uh, do a game that Grescu was involved in, in junior, and I saw him play, and he was phenomenal, but I looked at him and said, this kid is just too small. It was the 70s, right? You mm-hmm. had to be the Broad Street Bullies, and somebody is going to kill this kid. And two or three guys in the second period took runs at him and didn't touch him. Didn't even get a piece of him. And I'm going, wow, if he can stay out of the way, but he won't. I didn't think he'd be able to stay out of the way as he as the caliber got better. The OHL guys are going to nail him. The NHL guys are going to nail him. And it turns out nobody ever hit him. Basically, nobody ever ran him. Not till the end of his career,
0: which is partially what led to the end
4: of his
1: career. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.